Let's pretend that I haven't been up here and I just walked up like a cool preacher. Right? Yeah! Good night. I'm done. That was amazing. That's the one thing that we lack here, but I guess we gain a lot of other things. Is I don't really have that amazing stage presence where a pastor just walks on stage and everyone's like, there he is, because you just saw me for the past hour and something, sitting and eating cake with you and talking. But I guess it's cool, because what I lack in finesse, I make up in love. Let's say love. Isn't that cute? I'm short on finesse, as well as I am short. But I'm I'm heavy on love. That should be my that should be my new slogan. Short on finesse, heavy on love. That's our ministry style. So welcome tonight, um, and I'm excited for this. I'm excited to be back here. I'm kind of a little hyped right now. I did not eat a pixie stick as most of you are right now. I ask you that you will pay attention, even though you have just slammed in probably one of those pixie sticks more sugar than someone should probably have all day, but uh, try to pay attention with me as I go through this, because it's exciting. Um, If you remember, we're on our second part of You Are Worth More Than Many Sparrows, and uh, if you remember the whole point of kind of this title, is we were talking about this world that we live in, where very often today, people's worth has seemed to kind of vanish. It's disappeared. Uh, We talked about people who are drug addicts and just completely give up on what their body is worth. I talked about, um, you know, prostitution, women who will sell their body for almost nothing. Uh, And really we see this picture of the fact that people have lost the value of what they are worth. People are worth a lot, but they just don't see it anymore, and and we see this kind of played out. No longer care about themselves, and they don't make decisions that are fitting of someone who is worth a lot. So the whole entire point of our three-part message is to tell you that you are worth something, and in fact, you are worth a whole lot. So, tonight we continue. Last week, we talked about the fact that you are worth God's care, and tonight we talk about the fact that you are worth God's love. Tonight is probably going to be my favorite night, although next week will be good too. But um, I've been really thinking about this message for the past month and a half. When we very first come up with this um, message series, this is the one that really stuck out to me. Like, seriously. Like, when I read it, um, like, I really want to show um, some of what God's love is. And I can't, I can't show you all of what God's love is because it's amazing. But I think that maybe I'll be able to show you a piece of it. And that's what I kind of wanted to see here. If you guys have your Bibles, I hope you do, you can go ahead and turn back to our verse for these three weeks, which is Luke 12, 4 through 7. We read it last week, and I'm going to read it to you again. Go ahead and get there. Come on. Come on. All right, and I'm reading out of the NIV. <laughs> Luke 12, 4 through 7. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom to fear. Fear him who, after killing of the body, has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. So that's our picture for these three weeks. Read it over this next week. Look it over. Try to really get into that. Like I said from the beginning, this is kind of a a beautiful picture um, that God is using to talk to us. But 
to kind of start with that before we really move into everything we're going to teach, to continue with the whole you're worth more than many sparrows idea. I'm a real, I love reading in the Bible and finding um, things that back each other up. It's really cool. Um, there's a thing when you do like research, when you do reporting for things, if you can find two sources that both say the same thing, it verifies your story a lot more than just one person. If you can find two, like it's not the fact that like it's two times as credible, but it's like four, six, eight times more credible because if two people say the same thing happened, well, that makes the story a lot more real. So if you look through, we go back two books to Matthew, we actually see a picture of this exact same uh, altercation, if you will, this conversation that's had. It's in Matthew 10, 28 through 31, and I'll read it for you. You guys don't have to turn there. But I also found this here, and it says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And even the very hairs of your head are numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. So we find another instance here where we get the you are worth more than many sparrows kick. But here's something that I noticed. Did you catch a difference in between these two? Did you catch something that stood out? Were you listening? Were you listening really closely? Maybe you weren't. But if you listened, in Matthew, he says two sparrows are worth two sparrows, sparrows, two sparrows. Two sparrows are worth one penny. And Luke says five sparrows are worth two pennies. Which I thought was kind of interesting. Now, this is just my take on this thing. I mean, I can say it either way. But I think that this is quite possibly quite possibly, one of the oldest examples of a price break in all history. See, if you bought two, it was a penny, but if you bought four, you got one for free, one extra. You guys have seen this in stores, right? You buy four sparrows, get one for free. Probably the people on the market said the exact same thing, and that's where you get this thing. You'll, Luke is probably, maybe, who knows which one Jesus said, or maybe he would have even said both. He could have said, you know, if you go around the corner, I know a guy who's selling five for two pennies. It's a better deal. Quite possibly the oldest picture of a price break I've ever seen. But here's the deal with this. When we're talking about you're worth more than many sparrows, right? Um, what type of items do you see that kind of tag with? Do you see that on really, really expensive items? High ticket items? Are you going to go in to, I don't know, a car dealership? Or are you going to go into some really expensive fine jewelry store? And you're looking at, a, how about a beautiful Rolex? And they say, you know what, we have a deal. If you buy four, you get one for free. They don't make those kind of deals on expensive stuff. This is the kind of deal you get when you go shop at one of those Costco kind of places like Extra Cut, you know, Sam's Club type of thing, where you can buy like the five-gallon tub of mayonnaise for, you know, a third of the price of what it would cost normally, right? Buying in bulk. This type of pricing is given to things that are of very little value. People can afford to buy four of them and get a four, uh, fifth one free. Not something that's really valuable. So when I say you're worth more than many sparrows, not only just the fact that you're worth more than a lot of sparrows, but you're not meant to be put in that bracket. You're not meant to be put in a bracket where, you know, you're just to be spent and, you know, cheap. You're meant to be something that's really expensive. That type of title should never be put on you because you're actually worth something. So just something kind of interesting that I thought of that. Um, I noticed little things of that, but... To continue on, you are worth more than many sparrows, and you are worth his love. Last week, we looked at kind of the most simple interpretation of this Luke 12, 4 through 7, which I was saying was about God's care. Um, as we look into this, 
we can obviously see a picture of God's love within this. There's this picture of the fact that he's saying that not only are you worth more than many sparrows, which is cool, saying you're worth something, but he, he says that he knows how many hairs are on top of your head. That's how intimate he's talking about knowing you. And I know a lot of you guys are probably saying, what the heck do I care whether or not God knows how many hairs I got on top of my head? What does that possibly do for me? Why do I care if God knows that I have a thousand hairs on my head or if I have 15,000 hairs on my head or I have 12 hairs on my head? It doesn't make any difference, right? But you've got to understand this is painting a picture. If God literally knows the number of hairs that are on top of your head, how much deeper does he know your soul? How much deeper does he know your mind? How much deeper does he know your actions? See, what he's giving is this picture of the fact that he really loves you enough to know just a minute detail. Here's an example, right? People have kids, and they know everything about their kids. They know the weight that they're born, the length that they were. They know the day they first walked, the day that they said, Dada, how tall they were at this time. People take and they have their kids line up against the wall, and they take and make little cuts against their doorposts as they get older and older again. If you're not their, their parents, do you care? It's really like, that's cool, but I'm not going to spend my time remembering like how tall your kid was when, it, when he was like three years old, right? God is saying that he loves us so much that he knows how many hairs are on top of our heads. That's the kind of love he has for us. And that's crazy. That's an amazing kind of love. And that's what he's trying to describe here. So even though it sounds ridiculous, there is a point. Last week we talked about this care, and this week talking about care and kind of these demonstrations, we are going to see how God really loves us. So, I want to start way back when. I can give you a verse. A lot, of, a lot of people do this, right? They're a preacher, and they say, God loves you. And they'll turn to the Bible, and they'll say, because Exodus 34, 6-7 says, And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their fathers to the third and fourth generations. And they'll tell you, see, God is love. He says that he loves to thousands. He's faithful and he's maintaining. That's cool. I can read you a scripture and I can read you a part where the Bible says that he is love. But does that do much for you? I mean, does that really make you just fall head over heels in love with God? Wow, right? No, what's going to do a lot better is actually showing you a picture of this love, wouldn't it? Actually showing you an example of it. And literally only a few chapters before that in Exodus, I found a really good one that stands out. And it's actually in Exodus 20, 4 through 6. Um, if you go here, you'll notice it'll stand out right away because the section is talking about the Ten Commandments. This is the period of time after the, all the Israelites had moved out of Egypt and they're out and about God asked Moses to come up on this mountain, and he gives them these ten commandments, ten laws to live by, to better govern these people, to live a pure life where they're not, you know, just in complete, utter chaos and sin. So here's what happens is he goes up, and uh, Exodus 24 through 6 is actually listing the, uh, the ten commandments. It says here, No carved gods of any size, shape, or form of anything whatever, whether of things that fly or walk or swim. Don't bow down to them and don't serve them because I am God, your God, and I am a most jealous God. 
punishing the children for any sins their parents pass on to them to the third and, yes, even the fourth generation of those who hate me. But I unswervingly loyal, I'm unswervingly loyal to the thousands who love me and keep my commandments. Now I could just, like I said, I could just read you a scripture verse, but I could show you in this. Second commandment, he says, I don't want you carving any images, any idols, and bowing down to these things. And the reason he uses is he says, because I am a jealous God. That's a weird, a weird phrase, isn't it, for God to use? That he is jealous. A lot of us kind of have an interesting stigma with jealousy. You know, we think of like that crazy boyfriend who won't let his girlfriend talk to anybody because he's just, you know, a jealous egomaniac. But God is using this really to show his heart. He says, I am a jealous God. The most powerful holy, and set-apart creature of all of the universe says that he's jealous for you. That's wild, isn't it? In this verse, we see this picture of God's love because really, why would God care? I mean, he doesn't have to care, right? Why would he care so much about us? Why would he be so jealous unless there were some sort of feelings there, right? Unless there was some sort of love, some sort of adoration, what he's saying is this, as he says, I don't want you giving your praise. I don't want you giving your time. I don't want you giving your passion, giving your heart to anything but me. He says, I want every single bit of you. That's love. That's a beautiful picture of love, isn't it? Just like, say, when a, a man and wife get married, they make a, a commitment when they get married. They say, listen, we're together, and I am jealously going to guard you that I don't want any man if you're the guy or if you're the girl, any woman to have any part of you. I want you completely for myself. This is the same kind of union he's talking about. He says, I want all of you. I am jealous for every bit, every bit of your love because he is so in love with us. My mom said a really cool thing this last Sunday, and I was working on this message already, and it stood out to me. We were in Sunday school, and she was talking about spending time with people. And she said, it's really weird because she says, I could literally spend every single minute of my day for a super long time with my kids. And she says, if I had the choice of spending the next minute with them or without them, I'd choose to be with them still. And when I heard that, I'm like, man, it struck a chord. When I talk, thought about this, this jealous God, that he's saying, man, I don't want one minute apart from you. If I have the choice of having you or not having you, I want you right there by me. We start to see this love and adoration um, that he puts there. Let me tell you this, okay? God doesn't need us. That's just the truth. God doesn't need our praises to make him holy. God doesn't need our love to make him feel loved. God doesn't need us whatsoever. The only reason why he'd say that he is jealous is because he loves us. That's it. Why else would he ask for it? It's not just because he's an egomaniac and he wants us to keep on telling him how awesome he is. It's because he really loves us. So not only just that, but time and time again throughout Scripture in the Old Testament, God is referred to as this, this jealous God. Deuteronomy 4.24 says, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. It's used over and over again. Look in your Bible if you have a concordance and look the word uh, jealous up, and you will see time and time again that they use it to describe God. He uses it to describe himself. Like I said, this is a kind of jealousy that we don't see a lot here on earth. We see a lot of bad jealousy, but I'm talking about a very pure jealousy. 
uh, a loving jealousy because he wants all of you. Now, I could say kind of the same thing with the, with the New Testament as well. Like I said, some people would just want to give you a, a verse that talks about love, but that's not what I'm into. If I just wanted to give you a verse that talks about love, I could tell you, let's read Ephesians three seventeen and 19 saying, And I pray that you being rooted and established in love and having power together with all of the saints to grasp how wide, how long, how high, and how deep is the love of Christ and to know his love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all all the fullness of God. That's an awesome verse. That's a beautiful verse. But if you don't really know Christ and you're thinking about how does he love me, that's not really going to do it just to read that. Instead, I could show you a good picture. Um, I just told the guys in my temptation team, and I want to tell you guys too, I read a thing once it was saying, you understand that Jesus Christ is the personification of every single value of God. His love, his passion, his kindness, his grace, his mercy, his justice, all of it put into one figure, Jesus Christ. If you only spent your time studying Jesus Christ, you could learn every single value of God because it's all put inside of him. So if we look at Jesus and we look at his heart, we are seeing God's heart all together. So I want to read you a story, because like I said, I could, I could read you, um, you know, just a verse, but if I read you a story, you get to see a heart, you actually get to see a passion. It says this, in Luke 7, 11 through 15, and I'm reading it to you in the message. If you guys haven't been here, I'm on a message kick, and... Um, I want to read it to you because it stands out that way. It says, not long after that, I didn't read you the verse before this, so you don't know what it was long after, but we'll just go on with that. Jesus went to the village Nain. His disciples were with him along with quite a large crowd. As they approached the village gate, they met a funeral procession. A woman's only son was being carried out for burial, and the mother was a widow. When Jesus saw her, his heart broke, and he said to her, don't cry. Then he went over and touched the coffin. The pallbearer stopped. He said, young man, I tell you, get up. The dead son sat up and began talking. Jesus presented him to his mother. Now this actually shows love. This actually shows a picture of Christ's heart, God's heart. As I said, instead of just reading you a passage, I can show it to you. It says that when he's coming and he sees this whole procession coming, and funerals are sad, but he sees this widow and um, I don't know if you guys know much about the time, but if you were a widow back then, hard times. Seriously. If you are a widow, hopefully you had sons who took care of you. And here's a widow whose only son was dead. Not only was this woman at a tremendous time of pain because her son just died, but like it's literally like finding out you have nothing. Nothing. She was at a point in her life where... She probably didn't even know how she was going to eat her next meal. She didn't know who was going to take care of her. Perhaps she was already getting old and she couldn't probably even remarry. So the only thing she could probably do is hopefully she was a faithful woman and the church might help her out. Otherwise, she'll just probably starve to death. And Jesus comes up and it says that when he looks at her and he sees his procession, it says that his heart breaks. When I read that, I see love, don't you? It says that his heart breaks when he sees this woman. And not only the fact that he's just saddened by it, he doesn't just get sad, teary-eyed, and then walk past and keep on his way. But his heart breaks, and then he does something about it. He walks up, and he brings his son back to life, and it says that he presents it back to his, to his mom, 
like I said, not only just the fact that, I mean, obviously she probably loved her son, but he was giving her life back. Her life was over at that point, and he gave her a life back. That's love. Jesus wouldn't have done that for some other reason. You think he did it just to try to wow the crowds? No. It says his heart broke. It was just because it hurt. It hurt for him to see hurt. And he wanted to do something about it. That same love is transferred to us. Christ is just as real today. God's heart, personified through Jesus Christ, is just as real today with us. He loves us that exact same way. God is in love with you much like I'd say a father is in love with their kids. Now i got to back up from that because I know probably in the crowd, statistically speaking, there are people who say, my dad sucks. Some of you probably who might say, my dad left. Some of you who might say, my dad was a jerk. My dad abused me. All these different things that I'm sure in this crowd because, let me tell you, the family scene has been absolutely destroyed for what it's supposed to be. Fathers are no longer fathers. They're intimidators. They're destructors. I know some of you guys probably hear the word father, and that's what comes to your mind. But that's not the idea. I want to talk about what a father really is, and that's the kind of love that I want to show you. God does not ever want to see you fail. Ever. God wants to see you succeed. Uh, His promise is listed in Jeremiah 29.11 saying, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Just like a father, he wants to see you make something of your life. Now, God does not have to do this. Once again, I kind of come back to that to remind you of this. God does not have to do this. Um, he's, he's God whether you bless him or not. Um, he's God whether we like him or not. He's God, um, and he has no obligation to do these things. He could just say, well, whatever. But then why would he do them? Why would he say that he has a plan for our life? He has a promise for our life? I don't know if you guys have read it before, but one of my favorite books in all of the Old Testament is a book called Job. And we did a whole entire series on it a while back, a long time ago. And there's a story of this guy, and I mean, this is way back when. Historians think that Job probably took place before um, any of the other Bible stories happened, like Genesis, then Job, and then continue on with all the rest of history. Way back when. But it says there's this man, and he is in tune with God. He loves God with just an amazing passion. And it says that Satan comes into God's presence. He's walking around on the earth. That's what he says. He says, I was just walking around the earth. And God says, have you seen my servant Job? Because he's a man who's truly after my heart. I think that's pretty interesting, don't you? Why would God just mention someone? He's proud of Job, just like a dad, because he loved him. And we see this story where Satan basically tells God, the only reason why Job likes you, the only reason why Job honors you, is because you've blessed him, and you basically put a big old fence around him so that I can't hurt him. And God says, that's absolutely not true. And he says, I can prove it. He says, I'm going to take that fence away, and you can do whatever you want to Job, because I know that he'll still love me. I know that he will. Satan goes through these, all these things. Job is a long book. Most of it is actually just oratory, back and forth, between his friends and him. But Job's life absolutely crashes. I think I mentioned this before to you guys. Literally in the span of three minutes, Job's life went from everything to nothing. 
Job was a man of, of great wealth. He had kids underneath him, and literally every single thing in his life, except for his wife, who was a detriment, was taken away from him all at once. And the story goes all through, over and over and over again. Uh, Job saying, I am innocent. And his friend saying, you must be a sinner. And Job says, I am not a sinner. I am not, you know, this is, this is something else. It's not because of my sin. And at the end, we get to see where God finally actually talks to Job. And we get all the way to the end, right? And um, at the end, it comes down and it says that Job worships God at the end. And I was talking to my friend the other night. And I said, you know, what's crazy about the book of Job is that it could end right there, and it is an amazing story. Job is tested. He stands strong. He does not fail. He knows the fact that he is not a sinner, and he works all the way through that, yes, with some pain, with a lot of heartache. And yes, he is rebuked by God for some of the things that he said. Because, I mean, Job went through the depths of depths. He literally, in one whole entire section, he just basically poured out saying the fact that I wish I was never even born. I wish I would have died when I was born on this earth instead of being here now. God does rebuke him. And the story could be amazing at that because Job actually is back in right relationship with him at the end of this. He passes this test. But what's so awesome about Job is then after the whole entire story is over, we get this beautiful picture of how God is just like a father. And he loves Job so darn much that he can't help but bless him and bless him abundantly. All of this happens. And then at the end, what's called the epilogue, starting in, in 42.7, I want to read this to you in the message. It says, After God had finished addressing Job, he turned to Eliphaz the Temanite and said, I've had it with you and your two friends. I'm fed up. You haven't been honest either with me or about me. Not been honest either with me or about me. Yes, I said that right. Not the way my friend Job, ha- Job has. So here's what you must do. Take seven bulls, seven rams, go to my friend Job, sacrifice a burnt offering on your own behalf. My friend Job will pray for you, and I will accept his prayer. He will ask me not to treat you as you deserve for talking nonsense about me and for not being honest with me as he has been. They did. These guys come. And this is awesome because these guys basically berated Job for the whole past how how many things of the book where Job stood up to him. And God literally makes him go back and apologize to Job, and then Job's going to pray, and God will forgive them. That's like salt in a wound for those guys, seriously. So Job gets to go back, and this is after Job had interceded for his friends, God restored his fortune, slash, and then doubled it. God brings back everything he has, and then... He doubles it over. It says, all his brothers and sisters and friends came to his house and celebrated. They told him how sorry they were and consoled him for all the trouble God had brought him. Each of them brought generous housewarming gifts. God blessed Job's later life even more than his earlier life. He ended up with 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 teams of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. He named the first daughter Dove, the second Cinnamon, and the third Dark Eyes. There was not a woman in the country as beautiful as Job's daughters. Their father treated them as equals with their brothers, providing the same inheritance. Job lived on another 140 years, living to see his children and grandchildren, four generations of them. Then he died an old man, a full life. That's amazing. It goes through all this story, but because God loves Job so darn much, he can't finish the story there. He could have, and it still would have been awesome. 
But because Job loved, I mean, God loved Job so much, he couldn't let it end that way. And he just blessed Job beyond compare. He brought back all of the kids that Job had lost. He brought back double all of the fortune that Job had had. And he restored what Job's name was. Everyone come and apologized and said, I'm sorry. That's awesome. That's because of God's love. Like I said, he didn't gain any, any glory out of that. It was just because he loved Job and he wanted to show that to him. I think that's awesome. That's really showing that, that picture as well. So I want to tell you that God says you are worth his love as we read through these things. But moving on, 1 John, uh, yeah, 1 John 4.10, it says this. You can go there if you want to, yes. It says, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now here's where the story kind of turns, where it kind of it twists a little bit. When I read through the Bible, and when I look at my own life, when I look at all of this as said and done, and I hear the words that we are worth God's love, I couldn't disagree with them more. I could not disagree with them more. That's kind of odd, isn't it, considering I'm preaching an entire message called You Are Worth His Love. But when I read through the Bible, and when I look at my own life, I have to stand completely opposite of this. It doesn't make any sense to me. It's just hard. Um, I look at the facts, and I say, God is this amazing, pure creature. And when I look at myself, I figure, how could God possibly love me? It doesn't make any sense. It says, from the very beginning, that God set up these rules of good and of bad, of pure and unpure. And the Bible says, and we all know that all of us have fallen short of that, we are no longer pure in God's eyes. We're dirty. We're dark. It says the fact that because of that sin, we are destined to a place called hell, which is eternal pain, eternal loneliness, eternal separation from God. Now the crazy thing is, is that because he loved me so much, even though it's hard to see that, like I said, it's, it's hard to believe that, probably the most used scripture verse ever, John 3.16 but look at it in a personal light. It says, For God so loved the world, for God so loved you. Put your name in there. That he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. What it says is that God loved us so much, not just the world, but you. Put your name in that situation. That he sent his son to die as a sacrifice to pay for all of my sin. That's a lot of love. And that's hard to believe. He says he did this because of love, because he wants us with them. Jesus Christ said it when he was here. He literally said, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Jesus comes and he says, I want all those people with me. He literally prays to God, and he's like, God, we've got to find a way that all these people can just stay with me because I love them so much. Now, seriously, after all of this, too, after all these different, these, these amazing gestures of love, 
many of us never even take hold of this gift. The majority of us hear about Christ's death and Him paying for us and God's miraculous sign of love, and we never even take hold of it. The majority doesn't even think about it. They just kind of walk in the other direction. And kind of in the light that I look at it is like me, is that they hear about this gift and they say that it's theirs, and then they spit in its face daily. That's what hurts me. Some people are offered Christ and they say, nah, I don't think so. God gives them this beautiful gift. Can you imagine saving up all your money or something like that and you go to buy this beautiful gift and you go to give it to someone and they go, nah, I don't think so. They walk away. Tell me that doesn't hurt. Or even worse is the fact that they take the gift and they misuse it and they destroy it. See, some of us, like when I look at my own life, I think about me accepting Jesus Christ and then turning around and making a mockery of it. Living a life that isn't worthy of what Christ's love is. Living a life that isn't pure. Living a life that isn't whatsoever holy. I can kind of imagine just like God as my dad um, coming up behind me and putting his hands on my shoulders in a loving expression and how we kind of just do this as a kid. You ever seen that before? Where someone goes to really show love and the person just kind of slithers away? When I think about my own self, I kind of feel like I've done that a few times. But he comes up to, with a big old smile on his face to give me love and I just kind of squirm away from it and push it away because I don't want it. I don't want to take all that love. When I look at that, I know it breaks God's heart. And when I look at all these things put together, I say, how is it possible? How can I possibly say the fact that I am worth God's love? That I've done all this stuff to hurt him? That I've done all these things, spit in his face time and time again after he's offered me so much? I've taken every single gift he had and I've used them for my own benefit and turned around and basically slapped him in the face. How could God possibly love me? And I said, it, that's why it just doesn't make sense to me. It, how can I possibly understand this? And this is where I want you guys to really pay attention. If you guys haven't been to pay attention the entire night, I really don't care. But pay attention for the next five minutes. Because in the Bible, God is so gracious. Because like I said from the beginning, it turns out you really are worth his love. The fact that God's going to argue with you. If you say you're not worth God's love, you're arguing with God. And guess what happens when you argue with God? You always lose, time and time again. I completely believe the fact that God knew what our heart was going to be. And he knew that when we looked at our own lives, we were going to say, there is no possible way that God could love me. I am disgusting when you look at his beauty. And God put this amazing story that every single time I read it, it just blows me away so that we could actually kind of understand this love. I want you guys to turn to it. It's in Luke 15. I completely believe the fact that God put this in the Bible for people like us who say, this doesn't make any sense. It just does not make sense. And it's Luke 15, 11 through 24. It's called the parable of the lost son, story of the lost son. Jesus is talking. He's giving examples. Parables to teach who he is, give his, uh, his heart away. So then he said, 
There was once a man who had two sons. The younger said to his father, Father, I want right now what's coming to me. So the father divided the property between them. It wasn't long before the younger son packed his bags and left for a distant country. There, undisciplined and dissipated, he wasted everything he had. After he had gone through all his money, there was a bad famine all throughout this country, and he began to hurt. He signed on with a citizen there who, was assigned to, who assigned him to the fields to slop the pigs. He was so hungry, he would have eaten the corn cobs in the pig slop, but no one would give him any. That brought him to the census. He said, all those farmhands working on my father's, my father's, uh, for my father sit down to three meals a day, and here I am starving to death. He says, I'm going back to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I do not deserve to be called your son. Take me on as a hired man. He got right up and he went home to his father. And it says this, When he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His heart pounding, he ran out, embraced him, and kissed him. The son started his speech, Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. But the father wasn't listening. He was calling to the servants, Quick, bring a clean set of clothes and dress him. Put the family ring on his finger and sandals on these feet. Then get a grain-fed heifer and roast it. We're going to feast. We're going to have a wonderful time. My son is here, given up for dead and now alive given up for lost, and now found. And they began to have a wonderful time. Now it's an awesome story of a father and a son. But it wasn't just put in there for that. It was put in there for us. That when I look at all of my, my sin, I see myself as that prodigal son who took everything God had for me, and I went off and I spent it all on myself. But the crazy thing is, the crazy thing, after all this brokenheartedness that I feel when I read this story, I see myself as this boy, is that when he comes back, this dad does not wait to berate him, does not wait to correct him. It says that when he's far off, he takes off running to meet him. This old wise man takes off running to see his beaten down, broken up, dirty, stinky son runs up and gives him a big old hug. And this boy has this speech just planned out. I'm sure a hundred times as he was walking down that road to go back to his house, he was figuring how he was going to say it, how he was going to tell his dad that he was so sorry. And he was going to say, I'm not even worth being called your son anymore. Sometimes how I feel. But it says this guy wasn't even listening. Instead, he was yelling. Yelling at his servants to bring all of the garments of restoration to his son. He says, you take and you bring, a, you bring a robe. You bring our family ring, which signifies the fact that he belongs to us. You bring sandals for his feet. And he says, you slaughter that heifer because we are going to party. Because my son was once dead, and now he is alive once again. You see, Jesus put this in here. God put this in, in the Bible for us to read at times like this. That we say, with my human head, there is no possible way I am worth God's love. It doesn't compute. It doesn't work. But that God disagrees, and he puts his story in here to prove it. You're worth God's love. You are worth God's love. That's why he put that in there to show you that. 
As kind of a final word to this, I can say, personally, I absolutely know it's true. There are people in this audience tonight that if you stop them and talk to them afterwards, they can agree to this. An undescribable, unmerited love that makes absolutely no sense. From my own personal life, I can tell you that daily I realize how dirty, how disgusting I am in God's sight that I can just be so absolutely not like him. And yet somehow he shows me love on a daily basis. He shows me forgiveness and he restores me once again, over and over again. He puts that ring back on my finger and calls me back and says, no, no, we're going to party because you're back. I know it in rebellious times and in obedient times, I have felt this love. I have felt God's seriously unmerited love in my life. I know there's people out there who have it, who felt it too. So I want to tell you that you are absolutely worth God's love. Ask him about it. He'll tell you the truth. God loves us more than we can comprehend, more than we can possibly understand. And really, all he wants, like I said at the beginning, he's a jealous God, is for us to love him back. Just like a loving father. Just like a dad who wants to dote on his son and give him everything, give him the world and see him succeed. All he wants to hear is the son to turn around and say, I love you. Back to him. And that makes his day. All God's asking is that as much as I pour out my love on you, and just turn around and tell me you love me back. That's all he's wanting to hear. God puts proof in the Bible, and he puts proof in our lives of the fact that we are worth his love. Time and time again. So if you already know, if you already know Christ, I really hope that this has actually brought you to a different understanding, thinking about the fact of how much God really loves you. Or maybe you're sitting in the crowd tonight and you're saying, I don't even have a relationship with God. I don't even have a relationship with Jesus Christ. But that love is absolutely no different. God loves you all the same. It's just right now you might be in that place where you just kind of squirm away from his touch. And all he's asking you is to come back in and say, God, I love you. Because I know that you love me and I've seen it in my life. That's all he wants. If that's where you're at, man, come talk to me. Tell me that you want to start that relationship with God. You want to be part of that love. And you want to show God love back. Now, before we finish up, I want to play a quick song for you. And the reason why I want to do this is because I can tell you guys a lot of things. But I want you guys just to actually think about it. Quick song. It's like three minutes long. Okay? whole song is about the fact of how could God choose you. I just want you guys to pray during this, to think over what I'm saying, to ask God to show this love to you. And when it finishes, we're going to pray together, and we're going to end for tonight. But don't focus on anything else. Just focus on the song and talk to God during these next few minutes. morning and I just had to thank up all my life just read through James book start to pray and I ask God for a wife it's a time of devotion 
as I sit and speak to my God unseen. Why should he listen? Well, I love him and he's in love with me. Why me, God? Why should you choose me? Team God, can you use even me? Think a few years back on a road that headed to nowhere. Now that you found me. I can see how you were always there, so great a salvation. But to you, my Jesus, what am I worth? Quiet times like this, feel to get a glimpse of heaven right here on earth. Why me, God? Why should you choose me? Your team, God. Can you use even me? Oh, hold me in your arms of love. Sometimes I swear I feel your heartbeat. God, I um, just thank you for tonight, and um, Jesus Christ, even at times when I know we feel, when I feel myself that I can't possibly understand how you could love me, um, sometimes it just doesn't make sense, Lord God. I know that it's true because of what you've proven and what you've shown in my life, how many times in the Bible you have made it clear that you love me um, just unconditionally. I pray to you, God, tonight that each and every one of us, as we have just felt your touch tonight, that we would just begin to show you how much we love you back. I pray to you, God, that you would just pour out your love on each and every one of us, Lord, all of us sitting here tonight, and we would just know that your love is so true. And I do pray to you, God, tonight, if, if, if some of us are saying that we don't have a relationship with God, that we would just come into that place and say that I need that. I need that relationship with you. So I thank you for tonight, Jesus Christ, and I pray that you continue just this love in our lives, Lord God, as we continue loving you. And it's in your precious name that I pray tonight, Jesus Christ. Amen. Hey, one last thing. You're worth more than many sparrows. <laughs>